Thanks for tuning in to the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostrov, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with legal writing expert Steve Armstrong about the major impediments to clear legal writing and how to avoid them. Steve has been teaching writing programs for judges and lawyers across the globe for over 30 years. You may know him as the former lead instructor of the popular annual course on written advocacy or the co-author of Thinking Like a Writer, A Lawyer's Guide to Effective Writing and Editing, an invaluable resource for all lawyers and law students who want to improve their writing, senior lawyers who edit other lawyers' work, and those who teach law students about writing and editing, as I did. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Steve. Delighted to be here and with you and with everybody else who's listening in. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, writing well is a topic that comes up so often in, uh, in legal practice or in any type of um, work that involves lawyers. And I think that everyone would agree that writing well is an essential part of being an effective lawyer. But lawyers are often criticized for being poor writers, and even lawyers themselves complain about the quality of lawyers' writing. So what's wrong with the way lawyers write? (laughs) It is a a persistent complaint over the centuries, not even the decades. (laughs) Let me begin by saying that to some degree, it's a bit of a bum rap. I don't think lawyers on average are any means, by any means worse writers than the rest of the human race, or even for that matter, from the rest of the professional classes. The rap stems primarily over the decades and centuries from, I think, from specific types of legal writing that actually do deserve all the criticism and probably more than they get. Things like contracts, regulations, bureaucratic forms and edicts, mm-hmm. and the like that tend to be written in a kind of archaic 19th century style and format. Mm -hmm. It's about as far removed from plain English as it's possible to get. (laughs) It's been very good uh, to see in recent decades that there's been an effort, a moderately successful effort, to translate those kinds of documents, especially those that will be read by, let's say, normal people, not just by other lawyers, Mm -hmm. into plainer English. But put those kinds of documents aside because they form a kind of specialized genre of legal writing. For the other types of legal writing, expository and persuasive writing in general, memos, emails, letters, factums, those kinds of things. I think the criticism really stems from from two roots. First, lawyers very often face a challenge when they write that is probably more difficult than many other professions face, whatever they're writing, letter, email, factum. Because on the one hand, the subject matter can very often be complex, technical, not all that easy to to explain, sometimes, dare I say, even convoluted, perhaps Mm -hmm. somewhat arcane. But on the other hand, they are usually writing for readers. And I don't really care who the reader is, any reader in the 21st century. Readers who are, by definition almost, overworked speed readers. They are impatient. They are itching to get to the fabled bottom lines. They can move on to the next thing on the list. They are hugely unforgiving if a document seems to be wasting their time or not useful to them. Hmm. 
So that puts lawyers between a rock and a hard place to resort to cliche, which one should not do, of course. <laughs> uh, they, they have to do full and precise justice, justice the subject matter to its nuances, its complexities, because that matters more than anything else. But they also have to try to do justice to the reader's craving for absolute clarity and efficiency and as much simplicity as possible from the first sentence to the last. That is tough. It mm -hmm. requires a higher degree of skill than most professionals have to bring to the writing. And certainly a higher degree of skill than most of us ever absorbed during the course of our education. Mm -hmm. That's one route. The second is that many lawyers, and this is not just lawyers, but it hurts more when it's a lawyer, hurts the reader more when it's a lawyer. Most lawyers have a terrible time when they write getting out of their own heads so they can see what they write from the reader's perspective. Again, we're all, we all know we're supposed to be doing this, but it's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. That's particularly damaging if, let's say, the reader is a client who wants practical advice and thinks they're paying for practical advice delivered quickly and crisply. Or let's say when it's a judge who wants to see very quickly what the specific question is upon which the case turns and where the judge is really gonna to have to dig in and do the real work. Let me, uh, if this is all right, Shelley, if mm. not, tell me so. <laughs> Let me make this a bit more concrete because all this sounds very abstract when one's simply talking about it. By turning to a couple of examples. Great, great. Both are real ones. The first comes out of the following context. It was actually given to me by a client of a law firm who when she handed the thing to me, uh, still had steam rising from her ears. <laughs> Here's the situation. At 9 p.m. one evening, the client asked a, a lawyer in a law firm for comments uh, by 9 a.m. the next morning. This is why lawyers love the clients, of course. Uh, very prompt comments on a draft proxy circular. Lawyer, 8.30 a.m. the next morning, sends back an email that begins in the following way. Subject, review of proxy statement. First paragraph, we have reviewed the excerpts from the background of the merger section of the draft proxy circular that you sent us last night. We have the following comments, colon, followed by four, maybe as five paragraphs embedded in which along the way were a couple of suggestions for revisions to the draft. Now, sentence by sentence, this thing was impeccably written. It's not a literacy problem, but it should be apparent why the client was a very, very unhappy client. Tight timetable, she'd been up to hour, all hours of the night, night trying to finish things off. What she wants is very practical, concrete advice. What do we have to do? I don't mm -hmm. want to read the whole thing to figure that out. Mm -hmm. The revision, which she actually was kind enough when I asked to draft and send to me, this is what she wanted to see, would have liked to have seen. Begins with a subject line that says, draft proxy statement, colon, two recommendations. That's very promising. Right? And then the first paragraph goes like this. After reviewing the excerpts from the draft proxy statement that you provided, we have concluded that the disclosures in these excerpts are accurate, but we suggest two two changes to clarify 
the disclosures in two aspects. That's a little bit wordy, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. Colon, first, second. And the changes was laid out very quickly in the first paragraph uh, of the email. So when one talks about this, it seems so glaringly obvious as to be almost banal. But the problem is when lawyers draft, they are very often just kind of re replicating their thought process as they thought through an issue, and that's how it falls on the page, rather than thinking, what does the reader really crave at the get-go from this document? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should I try an example from a factum? Given to me by a judge, uh, opening sentence of a factum on appeal. William Earl Smith was found guilty of robbery based on the charge that he assaulted Richard Green with the intent to steal from him. On appeal, he claims the evidence was insufficient to support the guilty verdict. Now, there was more to the opening paragraph, but that was the statement of the issue, the question to be decided. Mm -hmm. Was the evidence uh, insufficient? You know the American ring to this, jury <laughs> trial and so forth. Uh, I apologize for that. Here is what the judge said he would have preferred to have seen, because his problem with the initial one is it really wasn't helpful. What do I have to think about as a judge? What do I have to decide? The evidence was insufficient to swell. Well, come on, give me a break. That's too vague to be any help whatsoever. Here is the judge's version of what would have been a more effective opening paragraph. Smith was found guilty of robbery based upon the charge that he assaulted the complainant with the intent to steal from him. It's pretty much the same. On appeal, he claims the evidence was insufficient to support the guilty verdict, also pretty much the same, because he did not have the requisite intention to steal from Green, from Richard Green, as required under the criminal code site. More specifically, does the accused honest belief that the complainant owed him money vitiate the intention element of the offense? Mm -hmm. And the judge's comment there is, if I had received that, that's a truly helpful start because it shows me exactly where I need to do my work, mm -hmm. what the mm -hmm. specific end of the road question is. So uh, examples can come from many contexts, but that very often when I'm talking to somebody who's the reader rather than writing a writer of a legal document in the real world, so to speak, not the academic world. No, nothing pejorative there. Uh, I was an academic for some time. It's that they complain about. It takes mm -hmm. far too long for me to figure out exactly how this is going to be helpful to me. And how how does a lawyer go from you know version one of both the examples that uh, you've provided to version two, particularly when they're under time con pretty strict time constraints, like in that first example with the email? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Part of it is a kind of mental discipline that becomes a habit after a while. But perhaps the more practical advice has two parts to it. One is, in my own experience, if you're writing something at all complex, time pressure or no, it's often not a good idea to sweat too much over the introduction because you just need to get the stuff down. But then you are duty bound to go back to the introduction and ask the following question. And here's the second part, practical advice. How is my reader going to use this? Mm -hmm. What do they actually need this for? Because truth be known, they just don't want to read what I have to say. They got to use it for something. Mm -hmm. How, what can I do at the beginning 
to show them how this is going to be used, what my recommendations are, what they should be do, what uh, do, what the, my advice is, you know, what specific question the judge has to focus on and answer. If that question gets asked, it should be relatively easy to answer. If it's not, uh, although it may sound harsh, the lawyer really has no business writing the document to begin with if they don't quite know how it's going to be used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a real, a real shift for a lot of lawyers is to think about documents being used for a particular purpose. Yes, it, it shouldn't be so much. And, and of course, there are many documents that do not have a particular purpose. It might be that uh, one is writing, say, a newsletter to clients to update them on particular developments in some area of the law. But for the bulk of the writing that is for a specific person or group of people, it does have a practical purpose. One uh, mental trick that some people find useful is imagine yourself, but let's, let's play out the hypothetical. Let's assume a client has asked you a question to which you are going to respond by email or letter in the next day or so. And just by happenstance, you happen to be standing at an elevator bank, at an elevator bank in an office building, and the client walks up behind you, about to get on the elevator too. And the client says, hey, Jill, or hey, Jack, great to see you. Uh, I I know you're going to get me something tomorrow, uh, but... Just give me a digest if you could. How do things stand? Mm-hmm. You're not going to, in the five-floor elevator ride, ramble on about this and this and that and the other thing and this authority and the other authority. You're going to be forced, looking the person in the eye, to say something that's practically useful or else just to punt and say, I'm not in a position to do that yet. Mm-hmm. If you can kind of pretend that you're looking somebody in the eye and they have no patience with you, that's a useful discipline for some people at least. A bit artificial but it can help. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Cause it forces you to just to get to the point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you've already mentioned how busy most legal readers are and impatient. Uh, so doing that as early as possible in a document can, can only help them understand uh, your message more clearly and, and incentivize them to keep on reading. Yes. Uh, It's a shock to many lawyers to hear a judge say, I don't actually read every page of every factum. (laughs) If I get a sense, it's not being helpful to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, you brought up factum a couple of times and uh, an introduction. And I'm not sure if it's the same in, um, in the U.S. as it is in Canada, but we often provide uh, in factums an overview and I think that may have evolved from some of the some of your teachings and some of the teachings that fall um, sort of um, that, that seem to evolve from that general principle of providing the uh, most important point up front. Any sort of thoughts on uh, writing overviews and introductions to complex complex documents like uh, like factums? Let me try a couple, a couple of suggestions. And you're right, uh, the overview, the terminology in the US is usually introduction rather than overview, but it's okay. much the same thing. And uh, the overview, actually I think now, because it's been preached over the years by many judges, uh, to a large degree, although by no means exclusively by John Laskin, who retired from the uh, Ontario Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. It may actually be embedded in the rules governing factors. 
I think, yes, I think, yeah, I think it is now. It wasn't. Um, And then from what I understand, a number of lawyers started doing it, perhaps Mm -hmm. at, um, they were encouraged by uh, by Justice Laskin, and then it became part of the rules. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts there, and I steal these largely from judges, not only of my own feeble head. One just replicates what I was saying earlier. Judges want to know exactly where the hard work has to be done. Not the general broad issue, but the specific question that is in, in dispute that they're going to have to deal with. And they want to know that upfront pretty quickly. Uh, secondly, what they would like to see in the overview is the fable big picture. Not, not lots and lots and lots of facts and rambling on. But especially if it's the initial stage of a case, they have not seen it before. Who's fighting with whom about what? How did this come about? What is the dispute about? Mm -hmm. Why does it matter really? Is there something here other than just people squabbling? Uh, They would like, and Justice Laskin has been a particular proponent of this, they would like some sense from the facts, usually crisply delivered in an overview, some sense of not just what the legally correct outcome would be, but what the commonsensical right or just outcome might be. It's this tricky territory because it's got to be done delicately. It's got to be fact-based, not, not kind of table-pounding based. And then the final component, if the factum is at all complex, they would like some structure to guide them going forward. They would like a map to use the conventional metaphor Uh, If there are three issues to be dealt with, those should be laid out cleanly and crisply. If there's only one issue, but the two or three prongs to the analysis, they'd like to have some sense of structure before they go forward. Otherwise, they'll always live in fear that this is just going to be (laughs) one thing after the other, rolling Mm -hmm. page after page. Mm -hmm. (coughs) And is that something that is applicable to um, other types of writing? I'm thinking of email, for example, uh, which most lawyers are spending a lot more time writing uh, these days. Uh, You know, it it seems like the idea of an introduction or something right at the outset uh, to grab the reader's attention and provide that, uh, that essential information would be really helpful in an email. Um, Could you really, sorry. Yeah. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think it's critical in almost any kind of document. Uh, very, very different, by the way, just to, to draw the line here from how one would go about writing a novel or your memoirs, or whatever you write, where the expectation is that the journey itself will be pleasurable. <laughs> uh, nobody really wants to read in work settings what lawyers write, even other lawyers, right? They just assume not bother. So something at the beginning that demonstrates this is not going to be too difficult, it's going to be relatively easy to understand, and it's going to be useful to you, is just, there's no way of overstating this. It's just flat out critical. Mm-hmm. How you do that varies, of course. And in an email, it's going to have to be very crisp and to the point, uh, both stylistically as well as substantively. If it's something else, say a longer factum or a long memorandum of some kind, obviously you have more space to play with and can afford to to incorporate more substance. But it's absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. And how do you help lawyers um, hone that skill? 
in two ways. The first of which is going to be a bit perhaps annoying even to state on a podcast. <laughs> and that is very often, as with any practical skill, if, if you cast your mind outside the writing realm to whatever anyone listening to this or you, Shelley, have time to do to recreate pre-COVID, say, whatever it was, play golf, play tennis, play the violin. Often how we learn, we can listen to people talk about it and tell us to do that and the other thing. But we learn by demonstration, by watching, by seeing somebody do it well, perhaps watching ourselves on videotape. In the writing circumstances, the best way of learning is by looking at before and after examples, which our book, uh, are being my colleague Tim Terrell and myself are now in the midst of producing a fourth edition of. Fantastic. Boy, that was a convoluted sentence, wasn't it? <laughs> but our book is full of these before and after examples. That's really what makes the, the advice concrete. So taking that I can't show you examples at this point, the other way in which one becomes better is going to sound a bit theoretical and abstract, but our experience over the years is that it really matters as much as anything else. One of the problems for most writers, not only lawyers by any means, is that if you think about the advice you've assembled over the years as to how to write well, you think about how you think like a writer, so to speak, about how to write. The advice most people have floating around in their heads is pretty much a jumble of assorted tips. We all know these things. You know, use strong active verbs, avoid jargon, use a subheading occasionally, try to keep your sentences relatively short, this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with any of those tips, but they are a jumble. If you contrast that to how one learns to think like a lawyer, the analogy would be that we would think like lawyers by relying on a jumble of laws this statute, this regulation, these cases, back and forth, back and forth, all they're kind of in a warehouse. And we select something from time to time to apply it somewhere. <coughs> Excuse me, not a COVID cough. <laughs> I'm glad you qualified that. <laughs> uh, one of the key ways that lawyers are able to think effectively as lawyers is that for any particular area of the law, they get their hands around a fundamental principle that underlies and brings some coherence to all the specific laws, cases, statutes, regs that are floating around in that area of the law. Uh, for example, and I'm risking here because I'm outside my realm of expertise, such as it is, it is a fundamental principle of contract law that if an offer has been expressly made and expressly accepted and mutual consideration has been exchanged, a contract has been formed. Well done. Go to the head of the class. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't test me any further. Please. <laughs> now, it, it, all kinds of bells and whistles and applications differ and all kinds of facts and incredibly complex once you begin to apply that simple principle. But the principle itself is at the root of understanding how you function when you're dealing with whether a contract has been formed or not. Thinking like a writer with the same effectiveness with which you can already think like a lawyer means getting your hands around some basic principles that underlie everything that has to do with, in this case, 
writing clearly about complex material. Mm-hmm. And from those flow all the specific advice that we're so familiar with. These, they're not a lot of these principles, and they are not at all difficult to grasp intellectually. As with legal principles, the difficulty, the skill comes in applying them in different circumstances. But let me give you a couple of mm-hmm. examples here. Again, this is bound to sound abstract because all I'm doing is talking, not showing. <laughs> but first, we've already touched upon, uh, it goes back to your questions about the values of introductions. But the research shows, and a lot of this is based upon research into how the brain processes complex information. What the research shows, not surprisingly, is that readers find it much easier to absorb and remember complex material if they know how it is going to be organized before it begins to unfold. Hmm. And then if, as it unfolds, the organization, the structure is made explicit, made visible on the surface of the prose, so to speak, through some of the familiar methods, topic sentences, transitional phrases, perhaps subheadings, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It is, the bad news here is perfectly possible for a document that is actually quite logically organized, still to seem to the reader to be pretty much stream of consciousness because the writer has not done enough to make the organization explicit. It becomes just one thing after another, even if the pieces follow each other logically. Mm-hmm. So that's one fundamental principle. Let me try one more. Okay. Uh, well, one we've already touched upon, it does go back to introductions again. If readers are to cope with complex information, especially lots of details, they really need to be given a context first before the the data dump of details that allows them to read the details intelligently and efficiently. They need to know what they should be focusing on or thinking about as they read, what the question, the theme, the problem is. Uh, They need to know what information, why the information matters, where it's going to lead, what conclusion will emerge from it. They would really love, and this is something sometimes lawyers forget about, they would love to be able to see a connection between what they're about to read and what they already know. Mm. So they're not confronted with totally alien stuff, but they can bring to bear something that they already are familiar with, whether it's factual or legal or whatever it is, that helps them to deal with the new information they're about to read. Mm -hmm. I'll try my luck with one third principle because I can make it perhaps a bit more concrete than these two. In what sometimes seems, at least to me, to be the declining years of a truly literate civilization, people are lazy. They like to absorb information in relatively small, bite-sized chunks. And like all of these governing principles for making complex information appear clear to a reader, this one has implications at all levels of the documents. It's why subheadings are a good thing to break up longer sections. It's why the average length of paragraphs and sentences has shrunk over the decades. Mm -hmm. And it also has a particular uh, application, which is more surprising to many people than it should be, actually within a sentence, because one of the primary techniques for writing a longer sentence effectively, assuming it's not gargantuan, in which case you're out of luck, but a moderately long sentence, is to break it up internally 
into say bite-sized pieces by using punctuation appropriately and organizing the segments effectively. Mm-hmm. So a 30, 35, 40 is pushing your luck, but a longer sentence can be quite easy to read if it's broken up internally into, smarter, into uh, shorter segments, which all comes out of the basic principle we just like to get information in smaller chunks, not in long spaghetti strands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those principles abstract, they become concrete once one begins to apply them in, in different circumstances. But that's really how you begin thinking in a sophisticated way about how you transmit, how you communicate complex information. Mm-hmm. It's harder to do, but in the long run, it raises your skill as a writer far more than worrying more about overusing passive voice or about the length of your sentences, say. Yeah, because I find that when we focus on those types of things, um, we kind of just get lost in the detail and the morass of, you know, the uh, information as opposed to thinking about sort of flow and rhythm and how ideas connect and um, that sort of natural progression that happens in cases where, like you were saying, you, you identify something, you start a sentence with some familiar information from the previous sentence. And so then the reader is just following along without really even realizing that, uh, that they're reading. It just seems so natural. Uh, I could not agree more. You put your finger on it. It does lead, if I were to talk about editing in particular, it does lead to a couple of suggestions. One, and you you put your finger exactly on this, uh, it's typically a bad idea to conduct an edit, even if you're feeling pressed for time, simply by rereading something and looking for problems that catch your eye as you reread, because that drives you almost inevitably to focus on the micro level, Mm -hmm. the sentences and all that kind of thing, and you cross out a few here and you change this and you change that. But even for a longer email, certainly for more complex documents, what really matters most usually is the organization, the clarity of the structure. And if you're reading simply sentence by sentence, you're likely to miss what's wrong structurally, especially Mm -hmm. if things hang together decently well. You know in your head how they all hang together. (laughs) And you miss whether or not they will actually hang together as well for a reader. The uh, The other advice that we try to promulgate for editors is that there are certain things that trained editors look for that you might think of as red flags or symptoms. Most people don't even notice them, but for a honed editorial eye, they kind of pop out. You, you mentioned one of them. For example, a trained editor will have trained himself or herself to pay lots of attention to the smoothness of the transition between paragraphs and between sentences. And if they're really fine tuning a document, they may take a pass through critical paragraphs just to do nothing more than to check the trend, those transitions. Hmm. They may well go through a document simply reading the first paragraphs after each heading to see if there's a good strong introduction, section by subsection by subsection by section. They may uh, take it down a layer and read just the initial sentence or two of each paragraph mm-hmm. to see if there are good, strong topic sentences that make everything hang together. 
So it, it's really taking a more systematic, organized approach to editing that in the short run as well as the long run can really make much more difference than simply sweating with more agony as you reread again and again uh, a draft. And then you stop, you stop really um, taking in any, any of the content of what you're reading because you've just seen it so many times. Like I hear time and time again from students saying, you know, I just, I've read this over so many times and I just, I don't even know what I'm reading anymore. Um, I not only understand, I empathize because we are, have reread the draft of the new edition of the book more times than I care to remember at this point. <laughs> and it becomes, as you say, just a blur. Unless you're looking for specific things, that's the cure to the blurriness. Right, right. So you mentioned some of the specifics uh, in terms of the, like getting a sense of the overall organization. Uh, I've heard something, I think I've heard it called some many different things, but one that just pops into my mind right now is creating a reverse outline. And that's picking up on something that you had just said about reading just the topic sentences of each paragraph. And mm -hmm. Some, said, some writing experts suggest going further and, and they suggest taking out all the content or pulling out just those first sentences and creating a separate document so that you read just those sentences. Have you ever um, worked with lawyers in sort of following that suggestion or what do you think of that? I think it can be an excellent suggestion. Uh, and you can move it up not move from the paragraph level, obviously, up to these section headings and so forth. An excellent suggestion. It requires some time and some discipline. But it's worthwhile because it will pull out, do exactly what you're saying, get your eyes lifted from the minutiae to the structure of the overall document or section. And that can be eye-opening. There's, there's an add-on to that. Let's move up to the section level. Let's say you've got a factum or some other kind of document where you've got multiple sections, multiple subsections perhaps. What doing that allows you to do, whether you're working with the opening sentences and paragraphs or with the headings themselves, is to ask yourself, is it clear, now the two questions, is it clear how this section paragraph supports the main thesis or point or conclusion or argument of the overall section or document? Mm. And is it clear how this paragraph, this subsection, emerges from the previous section or subsection or paragraph or whatever? So what you're looking for is what you might think of as vertical coherence. Does everything, is everything clearly supporting the main point of the overall document, and you're looking for what you might think of as horizontal connections. Is everything stitched together to what precedes it and follows it clearly enough? Mm -hmm. And I love how you mentioned about, you know, how something flows from what comes before it, because I think a lot of us were taught to focus in on that, uh, you know, sort of the idea of a five paragraph essay or a five sentence paragraph where you start with all important topic sentence, and then you conclude at the end, and then it's kind of full stop. Yeah, no. <laughs> Don't really sort of think about how to pick up to the next point. But if you were if following along what you said, if you're thinking about, okay, in that first sentence of the new paragraph, how does that connect with what I said before? Exactly. And it's that connection that a reader, at least subliminally, is probably looking for. 
Mm-hmm. Because if they cannot make things connect in their head, make it all hang together, much harder to hold on to the separate points if they're just kind of disassociated. Yeah, yeah. And then the idea of having an introduction, not just not being limited to just the beginning of the document, but as you were mentioning earlier, having an introduction at the beginning of a subsection. Yeah, uh, all the way through. You might think of this as the principle of perpetual introduction. <laughs> you can overdo it, of course, as, as anything. You can overdo it. But anytime you're about to inflict new information, new details on a reader, the first question should be, what is the context I should provide here? What do I need to say first to give the reader a focus, give a reader a sense of why this is going to matter? allow the reader to be able as they read to distinguish between the incidentals and what's really critical information. So sometimes this context, mini introduction might be no more than a sentence. Now, sometimes even in the interior of a document, it might be a full paragraph. Mm-hmm. But it, it transforms. It's like, imagine yourself walking down a winding path in the dark. It's like putting a flashlight in your hand. It may not transform the difficulty of the path. It may be what it is, but it transforms your ability to navigate the path efficiently. And that's really what introductions are all about. Oh, that's a great visual. I love that. I love that. And then that means that those introductions that we see oftentimes in academic writing that in the early years of some lawyer's practice gets translated into the way that they write legal documents comes out as, you know, in this uh, analysis, first I'm going to address this, then I'm going to address this, then I'm going to address that. That doesn't seem like the type of um, illumination that you're talking about. Nope, it's pretty much the antithesis of that type of illumination. Mm -hmm. The uh, basic question from the reader is usually, so what? Yeah. (laughs) I don't care what you have to say, but so why should I pay attention to that? What do you have that's going to be a benefit to me? Right, right. The other trap coming out of academia is that very often professors in legal education in particular are looking to see whether somebody can think like a lawyer whether their analysis is intelligent, thorough, accurate, all those good things. And therefore, they're not necessarily approaching what they read with the question that real readers in the real world will have, which is, so what? How am I going to use this? Mm -hmm. I'm not just trying to see how smart you are. I got to put this to some use. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of taking the writer out of the equation and like you talked about stream of consciousness writing and, and for a lot of students, it's let me show you how much I know. Um, no reader would find that very useful from what you're saying. I think that's right. Obviously, to go back the uh, rock hard place cliche, you have to be careful about the substance and thorough and precise and all of that about the substance. And if you are perhaps a junior in a firm or a law department, your senior will be particularly wanting to see that you are all of those good things. But it's the product that matters, not the process you go through mm-hmm. for most people. Yeah, yeah. I want to see sort of the, um, all that hard work having been done as opposed to uh, watching you go through the thinking process. 
Yep, and that is, uh, that's, legal writing is, is littered with what we might think of as default organizations. That is a kind of organization that is easy to use, that is familiar, that looks at least semi-plausible. It's not chaos by any means. And one of the most common is the kind of follow my footsteps. Mm-hmm. Here's how I thought something through. And you can often hear the writer kind of saying to themselves, perhaps, and I had so much fun doing this. <laughs> I can't imagine any greater pleasure to give you than to ask you just to retrace the path I took. Terrible mistake. Yeah, yeah. Not fun, to re- yeah, yeah not fun to read. Yeah, not fun to read at all. Yeah. Well, well, you've offered so many wonderful, uh, I'm, I'm afraid to call them tips because I know how your idea of uh, principles being much more important than actual techniques or strategies, rules, tips to follow, but um, your principles, if we can keep those in mind, it seems like naturally we'll start to apply rules even if we didn't know that they existed. So, I think that's right. It takes some. It takes a mind shift a bit, uh, because we most of us have so far so much memorized these little tips and can apply them fairly easily. But it pays off. Mm-hmm. What really emerges from all of this, and perhaps I'll end on this, is that go back to your initial questions. Why do lawyers have a rep for writing badly? Sometimes it is truly deserved. Sometimes, though, it's not so much about writing in the school sense whether your prose is decent. It's about the act of communication, communicating in a way that from the reader's perspective is efficient and effective and useful to them, not just a platform for showing how much you know and how, how smart you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So well said. And you know, going back to writing being about communication, clear communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, So wonderful. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Steve. That was super helpful. Uh, Is there any one last thing that you'd like to leave listeners with? I mean, you've provided so much helpful information already. Well, thank you for those kind, perhaps slightly implausible, but very kind words. (laughs) Uh, You know, the one tip I would leave you is a very, very pragmatic tip, and this is a trap into which I have fallen again and again and again. Try, however time-pressed you are, try to manage your time so you save sufficient time at the end to edit. And that may mean just 10 or 15 minutes to review the email before you send it out. It may mean to go back to the classic, putting the draft of the longer document aside for a day or so and then coming back and reviewing it. Mm-hmm. But again and again, it's, it's the crunch at the end where people have not managed the times so they can do a decent edit uh, for which they really pay a price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And have you found that um, reading aloud can sort of help speed up that editing process? You know, it's, it's usual advice. I have to say myself, and this may just be a failing on my part, I've never found it all that helpful, except in one situation. And that is when I'm a bit worried because of the topic I'm writing about, that my prose is going to sound stilted Mm. or jargony or artificial or robot-like. And sometimes if I read it aloud, I can catch the fact that I'm writing bureaucraties, not in a human voice. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other than that, for structural issues, I've never found it all that helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, at larger scale, I'm not sure it helps that much, but other people may have different views about that. Yeah, interesting. Well, it seems that structure organization um, are absolutely essential and that they're like substance, really, in it's, the end. It's really how the substance actually sinks into somebody's head. Mm-hmm. Not enough for it to be in the document. It has to be in the head, and it's paying attention to the context you're creating to making the structure explicit that really allows that transfer to happen between your brain and your reader's brain. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, thank you again, Steve. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and uh, passing on your wonderful ideas and sharing your expertise. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for uh, this opportunity. And uh, I am glad to see that you're doing these podcasts on a variety of topics that seem of immense practical usefulness to boys. Excellent. Thank you. And I just a shout out to uh, the fourth edition of your book. We'll all be looking f- uh, forward to reading that. Will it be as yes. long? Will it be as long as the third edition? Oh, I thought we were friends. That's not a polite <laughs> question. Uh, the book, which, by the way, is called Thinking Like a Writer, colon, of course, uh, A Lawyer's Guide to Effective Writing and Editing, is something of a monster in terms of size because it covers a variety of genres of, of legal writing, not just the basics. So unfortunately, it's going to be no shorter. But it's structured, so one doesn't need to read it. In fact, you'd have to be a masochist to read it from start to finish. You can dive in in places that you find particularly useful. Terrific. Well, I look forward to reading all of it. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you. So long. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L. E-G-A-L dot com.